This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Over the last year, the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Partnership for Public Service have been collaborating on the progress of artificial intelligence in government and its implications. This is a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring how AI can transform government. Artificial intelligence is automating everyday tasks at an increasing rate. The world is grasping the possibility that this technology could simplify numerous repetitive jobs, and government has taken notice. In February, the Trump administration launched the American AI Initiative through executive order. It calls on agencies to prioritize research and development investments in artificial intelligence, improve access to data and the computing power AI systems rely on, create guidelines for dependable AI technology, and take steps to prepare the American workforce for the coming disruption. The U.S. Defense Department also recently released its own strategy on how to incorporate AI into national security. The federal government will not be immune to technological changes. Agencies and their leadership will have to manage challenges that arise from the extensive disruption AI brings while taking advantage of the opportunities it presents. Federal employees will need new technical and social skills to succeed in an AI-augmented workplace. AI can enable agencies to fulfill their numerous roles more effectively and efficiently by reducing or eliminating repetitive tasks, revealing new insights from data, improving customer services, and enhancing agencies' abilities to achieve their missions. Drawing from multiple discussions with current and former federal executives and leading academics in the AI field, the first report by the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Partnership for Public Service, The Future Has Begun, Using Artificial Intelligence to Transform Government, highlights steps government needs to take for successful implementation. The report focuses on three areas of impact. These experts agreed agencies will need to consider and manage a transformed workday, the potential for personalized customer service, and increased importance of technical and data skills. This show aims to spark a conversation on the use of AI, help prepare federal leaders to assess the inevitable changes coming, and provide government leaders with insights to navigate this transformative time. Today I will bring you those insights from Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, 
Mallory Bowman from the Partnership for Public Service, and Bill Wyatrowski from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from a panel discussion hosted at this year's American Society of Public Administration's annual meeting. Here's Mallory Bullman telling us more about their collaboration exploring AI in government. Dan and I have been working together for a couple of years now to do research on artificial intelligence, both the potential as well as some of the infrastructure building that needs to happen in government. And um, as part of the research, we came across Bill and his work. And um, we're going to start off today giving a bit of a, a primer on what artificial intelligence is what the potential in government is, what some case studies of success are, and then we really want to have a conversation. This is an area ripe for discussion, ripe for intellectual curiosity, ripe for research, and uh, really looking forward to the discussion we can have today. Before delving into specific case studies on the use of AI in government, Dan Chenock from the IBM Center defines what exactly is artificial intelligence. In the report, we actually gave a short definition. I'll read it and then just sort of comment. The term artificial intelligence refers to machines and software able to perform tasks we typically associate with humans, such as recognizing speech and images, predicting events based on past information, or making decisions. So it's machines that are essentially uh, performing tasks the thing that this doesn't say is that AI uses uh, vast amounts of information. It, it, um, it's sort of lots of different data points that bring together into an AI engine that make that AI engine smart. It creates a real-time, often interactive, often personalized experience. Think of a chatbot that you might call up if you're ordering something through, through your famous fa favorite e-commerce website. Um, it, and it does so in a way that learns over time. So if I'm ordering something from a, a provider, the next time somebody comes in and has a similar set of characteristics, the provider knows better how to serve that person. Um, so it's, it's sort of the thinking and acting like a, it's sort of mirroring the way people do it, but it's also doing it at speed and scale in real time and in a way that learns over time. Panelist Bill Wyatrowski from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is a self-proclaimed AI cheerleader. He explains why and it relates to how AI and machine learning can do repetitive tasks more effectively. So uh, I, I, I always describe myself as the official cheerleader for AI, and when you get into sort of the technical details, I, I quickly sort of run, um, run out of the room. But, um, you know, when I first... Um, you know, first hear about AI, you think about some movie that's going to come in and sort of take over your life. Um, but really what, what we do, sort of echoing what Dan said, um, we do a lot of routine tasks in producing the data that we produce at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what we discover is that, that those routine tasks can often be done uh, more quickly and better uh, using uh, machine learning artificial intelligence. Mallory Bullman from the Partnership of Public Service recognizes the needs of federal leaders are becoming increasingly complex. Work demands are rising and agencies do not necessarily have resources with which to solve these problems. So what they're looking for is a new way to look at the problem and try to figure it out. So in this report, we spotlighted a range of sectors that were addressing problems with artificial intelligence. So the first one uh, looks at fighting crime. Uh, no uh, capes needed, I guess, on this one. <laughs> so the key to fighting crime is unpredictability in the response. And we looked at a couple examples in this case. One was the Los Angeles Airport Police. And they faced an issue that many public workers face, is they didn't have enough 
officers to patrol all of the points of vulnerability. And so what they did is they worked with uh, the University of Southern California to come up with a program to create an algorithm that would help them be unpredictable in the sites of the airport where they were located. This they found to be tremendously helpful at you know, not having recognizable patterns that people that were trying to break the law could identify. This practice was found to be so successful that the Coast Guard op adopted it as well. They used the same computer program developed by USC to find randomized boat patrols, and they were able to really cut down on illicit activity. They were trying to also save lives in places where injuries and, and may occur, and they were really able to use the exact same algorithm that was used by the Los Angeles Airport Police. USC was really marveling at this invention and started to think about ways it could be applicable to other instances. Mallory Bullman elaborates. USC was really marveling at this innovation and started to think about ways it could be applicable to other instances. One of the things the USC researchers started to look at was wildlife poaching. So when you look at different types of illicit activity, one of the most profitable ones that is out there is, is wildlife poaching. It, it's about an eight to $10 billion a year enterprise. And people engaging in wildlife poaching ends up resulting in the loss of life of endangered species and really fundamentally affects our, our climate. So what they were able to do is take historical data about wildlife poachers as well as game theory, and they put it together in what's maybe my favorite acronym of the Protection Assistance for Wildlife Security, or PAWS, which was, you know, those acronyms go, that's a cute one, um, to really make sure that they were able to predict where poachers were going to be located. They looked at geographical features that poachers would type, sometimes focus on, whether it was the slope of the land or proximity to water, or proximity to roads. And they were able to better predict where poachers would be and really better able to target and focus enforcement activities. Now, it's not a perfect solution. They also found some things that didn't work. Um, as we're going to continue to talk about, data is the fuel that enables artificial intelligence to, to work. And there really wasn't as much historical data on poaching as they needed. Similarly, geography really matters. They were looking at poaching in Uganda, and they were also looking at it in Malaysia. Malaysia is a much more hilly terrain than Uganda, which tends to be very flat. So the types of geographical features they were looking at really were very different in the two instances. So they are continuing to work, continuing to learn, continuing to refine the algorithm. And this is another unique characteristic of AI is that there's a learning component to it. It's not a static process. What you end up having is you know, continuing to refine the data, improve the data, and improve the insights. From the use of AI in combating crime to the use of it in conquering federal purchasing, Mallory Bullman from the Partnership for Public Service continues. The second piece that I'll talk about um, is conquering federal purchasing. Now, you may not think that that's as exciting as conquering crime, um, but few things put fear in the hearts and minds of those who try to interact with federal government as the three levels of the, uh, the FAR. 
And uh, for those that try to work with the defense community, there's then the, the DFAR. And so what the Department of the Air Force did is they were trying to figure out how can we make this go better? How can we make it easier? How can we make sure that when they're using contracts, they're using the most creative ones possible? Also, how can they lessen the barrier to entry? Right at, as of fiscal year, I think 2017, only about 20% of the Air Force's contracts were with small businesses. They wanted to make sure a, uh, organizations that didn't have a robust procurement shop were really able to interact with the federal government. So what they did is they wanted to really revolutionize procurement at the Air Force. That's no small thing. The Air Force's procurement ranges about $50 billion a year, or 11 cents for every dollar the Air Force spends. So it really is a way to fundamentally revolutionize the way the Air Force does business. There's no magic here. They spent a tremendous amount of time putting the thousands of pages of the FAR into an automated system. And what came as a result uh, was they were able to have contract officers better able to answer questions about what contract mechanism is the most useful or most appropriate for various procurements. Similarly, purchase, um, bidders are able to enter into the system and see what type of contracts they can be eligible for. So really, the barrier to entry was lessened. Again, this is a very different example than the crime enforcement, but what we saw in these examples was you know, data and insight and ongoing learning has really led to fundamental changes within the agency. From battling crime to improving federal contracting, Bill Wiltrowski tells us his own story about the use of AI at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So uh, just a reminder, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, part of the Department of Labor, uh, we're the folks that uh, give you a wide range of economic data uh, every day, including this morning, uh, the employment and unemployment data, and next week, the consumer price index, producer price index, and a variety of other indicators. Um, and so our goal is to produce gold standard information to help all Americans make good decisions. And so as you might imagine, that data has to be uh, as high quality as possible. We spend a lot of labor hours making sure that the collection and the review and the processing and the dissemination of those data are as high quality as we possibly can. And so a few years ago, we started looking at some of those processes to see um, how they could be more automated. And we had some very smart folks um, in, in our agency who looked at some uh, machine learning techniques in order to do that. Um, as you might imagine, so we collect a lot of data. We collect much of our data from employers. Uh, a lot of that data come in text. And so we spend an awful lot of resources converting those texts, that text, into codes that we can publish. So it might be uh, a description of an occupation, or it might be a description of an industry, or in one of our programs where we've done this a lot, it's a description of a workplace injury. So what happened to a worker that was injured on the job? This information comes in from employers, typically over the internet, but it comes in in text, and we have to find a way to classify that. We have traditionally used um, staff to do all the coding of that data. Um, and, and as you might imagine, um, employers provide data in sort of different ways. So the best example I have is we get information um, in our injury program about injuries to janitors. Um, one year we identified 
close to 900 different job titles for a janitor. So not everyone calls a janitor a janitor. Um, and so um, we had staff that had to code that information. So we started looking at how can we automate this process. And so uh, we built uh, a training file. This is really a key. As you heard a, a, a few minutes ago, the more data you have, the better. And so you want to build this what's called the gold file or the gold standard file or the training file, which is essentially uh, sort of perfect information to help the computer learn. And so we use the, the humans that are very good at this coding to code and recode and compare and verify. And over time, we've built that training file to be larger and larger and larger. The more data that you can feed into the computer to learn from, the better the output is going to be. Uh, we've, we use that then to take this raw text information that was coming in from employers and turn that into codes. So, and what we do is we identify a probability of what the right code is. So, uh, you know, some of them are fairly straightforward. Registered nurse is going to be code XYZ. And if someone is actually called a janitor, they're going to be called, they're going to be code sort of ABC. But um, it, it also identifies where cases aren't so cut and dry, and it'll provide sort of a lesser probability. We have over time set a threshold where um, if the computer, the probability coming out of the computer is over a certain percentage, that coding is then sort of automatically put into our database. If it's below a certain percentage, that's when the humans come into play to sort of make, um, make a decision on, um, on what, the, what the code should be. Um, we started very small. Um, we started just looking at occupation, um, and we started with only those that we knew had a high probability of success. And we've done this now for about five or six years, and each year we've added more, um, more to the training file and added more to what we code. We did some validation. We discovered the computer is, in many ways, does a better job than, than the human coders do. As you might imagine, the human coders have hundreds of thousands of cases that they're pouring through um, at a time. And, um, and you sort of get a little fatigue from that process. Computer, thankfully, doesn't get fatigued. Um, and so um, we're now coding almost 100% of our safety and health data for, for this um, workplace injury survey um, based, um, based on the computer rather than um, rather than having the individuals do the coding. So I'll give uh, just a second example. Um, uh, this one's very much in the development stage. So we issue a lot of news releases. Um, and on purpose, these are really boring news releases. <laughs> these, um, you know, they just the facts. They don't, um, they don't have sort of a lot of detail. Um, but we're working on a process of uh, developing what we were calling the next generation news release. And this has sort of two aspects to it. Uh, the first aspect is sort of the look and feel of the news release. Um, if I were to hold up a consumer price index news release from 1955 um, and the one that we're going to release next Tuesday, um, you probably, they don't look a whole lot different. Um, it hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been a lot of sort of um, innovation in the way we put out uh, news releases. But, uh, but we think, uh, and talking to a lot of stakeholders, uh, there's a lot of um, the way we read information, the way we digest information has changed considerably over those 60, 70 years. Um, and so we're looking at the next generation that is more bullet points, more graphics, more links to video and databases. Uh, so a completely different approach to what a news release would look like. 
Um, and when we're coming up with, design, with this design, we're also talking about um, how can we generate that text and can we get the computer to generate the text as opposed to the humans generating the text. Um, and so um, we have some smart folks in my office and they used natural language processing to look at the data that feeds into the current news releases and look at the statements that we make in those re news releases based on those data. And from that, um, they, they, it's, that was sort of the training data, and they sort of trained the computer, and, and then they, they took that information and, and then used the process of natural language generation where they took some new data and said, can we generate uh, uh, bullet points uh, uh, with, with highlights about the data? Um, and sure enough, the, the, um, the computer was able to generate essentially the same quality of information that we, um, that we produce um, by hand in our news releases today. So we haven't implemented that process yet. We think that process is going to be the first draft of a news release. There's always going to be a human sort of looking at it to make sure that there's something, something um, sort of really bad going along. But, um, but the natural language processing is really moving us forward in, in the way to get the information out the door. How can AI augment human decision making? We'll find out when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the use of AI in transforming government. Dan Chenick, Executive Director at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, picks up where we left off. How can AI augment human decision-making? So I want to um, comment on that last point, and that's the role of artificial intelligence in augmenting human decision-making and, and making humans better at taking actions, making decisions based on data that are real-time, accurate, and, and sort of look at a large scale in ways that people have a very hard time doing. You have to have a lot of people to code a lot of That's stuff right. to get to the That's same right. way that one single AI bot would do. And uh, so it's not really a matter of replacing people, especially in the public sector space. The way that we see AI working in the public sector is really augmenting decision-making, and we see that across the economy as well. What factors are needed in the public sector to make AI implementation successful? Dan Chenick discusses the IBM Center report by Professor Kevin D'Souza, Delivering Artificial Intelligence in Government, Challenges and Opportunities. Here's Dan from a panel discussion from this year's ASPA annual meeting. Well, let me um, first talk uh, about um, one other uh, 
report that we issued last year. This was written by um, Kevin D'Souza, who many of you probably know, a scholar who was at Arizona State and is now in Australia doing work. And he wrote uh, about sort of the factors that are needed in the public sector to make AI successful, and it kind of sets up the second report, which is why I want to start here. It's not, Kevin's work was not really about um, the algorithm itself. It was about how do you create technology platforms that take advantage of cloud computing, for example, to enable AI to be delivered at scale across different levels of government, uh, federal, state, and local. How do you build up data, quality databases? We know that an AI um, uh, information system is only going to be as good as the data that are fed into it, the training data, uh, the data in terms of customer use. So how do you establish data management, data quality procedures, the governance of that data over time, and, and put that together? That requires a skilled workforce, both in the government and in the private sector and research partners that are working with the government to make these advances. So how do we sort of develop the skill sets in the workforce to enable people to develop these applications that work on, on modern technology platforms? And then uh, the, the last thing, one of the last areas that Kevin talked about was sort of the whole area around risk management and we'll talk about this a little later around how do you do develop cybersecurity that protects AI, which is a different type of, a, of computing application. How do we think about mitigating, understanding and mitigating the effects of bias in data? How do you think about building ethical considerations? We can talk about those. So Kevin kind of laid out, here are all the exogenous factors that are necessary um, to implement AI in the public sector. That helps set up uh, a series of roundtables for this more than meets AI report that we um, participated in, Bill's been involved in, in some of these as well, and many um, federal leaders working in the space, we've benefited from their insights in these processes. And we really tried to look at, take a look at how is the work day changing? For, for a federal employee or a contractor, um, how, are, how can AI help them move, in Bill's example, from low value work, sort of taking and re-entering text data into code, to more high value work. If a computer can do that, then they can do more uh, work looking at the patterns and anomalies uh, in, a, in, in a case of a statistical agency or understanding sort of more deeply what are the causes of a particular health or safety problem. Let's say you've got a food safety agency or a traffic safety agency who's seeing sort of anomalies and patterns in in uh, traffic and they have a hard time getting to that because they got to do all the day-to-day -day stuff before they can get there in the last half hour of the day, they can free up much more of their day to really look at those anomalies and drill down and understand what's happening. Are these, like, are these um, uh, auto accidents, for example, traceable back to a particular uh, factory or a particular part of the country where there might be a set of mechanics doing some, some type of work? And, and NHTSA, actually, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, actually uses artificial intelligence to target their enforcement that day. A second um, way that this affects uh, the, how the government works is really personalizing service. And I talked earlier about when we all go online and do our favorite manner of shopping on our favorite e-commerce websites, and this is really becoming more of the norm for how the government delivers services as well. Instead of thinking about your job as sort of mostly compliance-oriented and rules-based, um, the best uh, agencies that are using AI effectively are thinking about changing their workforce skill set to emphasize service and to emphasize interaction with their constituents. And so you have things like in USAID, the, one of the examples that we talked about in the report was they're looking at improving their service around the world to local farmers who are receiving the benefits of development grants from AID to use AI to have very precise weather forecasts 
that can give them the power to understand how they can basically do crop management over time in ways that they could never have done before. So it's using AI to improve the service that our federal agency gives uh, to constituents that they're serving. And then the third area that we looked at in the report was really this back to the skill set area. How can we make sure that we are both setting up processes to bring in talent that understands how to both build AI systems and use AI systems. So Bill's a user of an AI system. There are many people in government that are using this technology. That's one sort of set of skills around analytics and, and understanding and doing um, uh, sort of understanding the effects of the information on the programs that they're operating. We also need um, skilled builders of AI. You have different skill sets for different types of jobs in the AI arena. There are people that are building the algorithms. There are people that are using the algorithms. And in this context, I'll mention there are people that are researching. Um, how do we best move forward in this space? And so in the report, we tried to look at these various ways that AI is really changing the manner of how government does its work. Changing the way government does its work can have serious implications. As government operations shift towards using algorithms, perhaps transparency can be sacrificed in terms of citizen and outside groups' understanding of what's being done and how it's being done. Dan Chenick from the IBM Center offers his perspective. We actually think a lot about that, um, and this is across the industry, and IBM certainly has its principles that it applies in sort of building AI systems. And transparency is a key element of how we think of the, the understanding about how AI works and the traceability um, so that people who are affected by decisions that are based on AI can understand how the person used the information to get there. So this is a principle that when companies are building the software and the applications that sort of run the AI, they can base, build in sort of, audit, Kevin, Kevin D'Souza talks about this in his report as well, auditability, so that you can go back and trace sort of the pathway that you got that was reached to make a decision. Um, I think your, your question is an incredibly important one. It's as people sort of think about, you know, what are the risks that could happen, we need to be very careful to make sure that we're explaining how AI is used when it's used basically for a, a government program that has high stakes. Bill Wyatrowski from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us more about his organization and how it handled the shift to AI and machine learning. So um, let, me, let me just chime in a little bit. We, we felt really strongly about the, the communication aspect uh, around um, sort of implementing some of this machine learning work. Uh, first, from an internal sort of staffing perspective, um, you know, people immediately think, well, artificial intelligence is going to take away my job. And so we had a lot of, uh, uh, the particular program that we started with was a federal state cooperative program. So we had a lot of um, employees in the states that were doing a lot of this coding work. And um, there was sort of this immediate concern that, you know, this was, you know, how does this work? Or, you know, you're, you're, you're changing my job or you're not getting the data right. So one, we started slow. Two, we um, did as much communication as we possibly could to sort of let people know how the process worked. And three, we, we opened the tent as wide as possible and got as many people involved in the process. So they were reviewing the training data. They were reviewing the results that came out of the machine learning to, to see whether or not that information um, sort of matched um, their perception of the, of the data. And so I think that by starting slowly, we really um, sort, of, sort of built um, some momentum and some interest in moving this process forward. We also had um, and continue to have sort of an external communication piece. We have a lot of considerable information on our website about how the, the um, artificial intelligence process works um, in producing our data. Uh, we give talks like this one and uh, some 
of the, uh, the folks that actually implement the work have given a number of, of talks um, about, the, about the data. And, and we also make sure that everything we do is repeatable and sort of statistically valid. And, and we have, have done some estimates of, of sort of the, the statistics behind it to make sure that this is sort of consistent with the quality data that, uh, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics always puts out. So I do think it's a really good question. And I think you need to have sort of a plan in place for that sort of communication and that transparency. Mallory Bullman from the Partnership for Public Service underscores that AI use in government presents unique implications, different implications than what the private sector needs to deal with. Well, I think, too, you know, implicit in your conversation is part of what makes AI in the public sector different. So, you know, Dan talked about the e-commerce sites, and I think certainly citizen expectations mm-hmm. mirror you know, what they can get from an Amazon or a Domino's pizza or, or you know, pick your e-commerce site. But there's a auditability and a transparency piece that the public sector has to contend with. I spent the first 10 years of my career at GAO, so this is something near and dear to my heart. But we do need to make sure that there is clarity, transparency, and accountability around these processes. And I think, you know, as we're monitoring and looking at the transformative power of AI, I think this is something as a community that we're going to need to continue to wrestle with of how do you make sure that there is that accountability and that clarity around how decisions are made in the public sector. Dan Chenick from the IBM Center for the Business of Government tells us how government agencies are learning from the best commercial practices governments across the world are experimenting. So there's lots of experimentation going on. This is going on all over the world. Um, in terms of government using AI to provide information and services. A lot of basically government chatbots, to to take your example, are at the beginning of the interaction saying, you know, would you like to talk to a person? That's one way to to sort of get, so if the person has that desire, they don't want to sort of do the self-service thing uh, on the phone, um, they can do that immediately. The other, another good practice is that the the chatbot then gives the information to the agent. So as agencies are learning from sort of the best commercial practice in this, they're learning how to set up the algorithm so that if you're, especially if you're online, right, and you're, you're doing stuff and you're communicating with a government agency and then you have to kick it over to a person because it gets more complicated, that person then has all the information and that's known to you. So it gets back to the transparency point. The information still, one, one of the principles that should be applied uh, is that the information belongs to the user, that, it, that as the government is working with you as a, as a constituent or citizen, it recognizes that it's involved in that interaction. Uh, the algorithm might, in, the person and you and the, the information within the chatbot are kind of all seeing the same thing at the same time. That's one set of principles. The second set of principles is to protect your privacy. So there is, when you are involved, especially in a government application, you, you do not want somebody to come in and be able to see necessarily your communication with a health agency. Um, or if you're a small business, your proprietary information that you're communicating uh, with a government regulatory agency. So building in into the AI algorithm sort of the proper security and confidentiality protocols is another best practice in terms of thinking about how do you do these these things. And in the case of BLS, there's high confidentiality on all of that data, although it's not necessarily individual specific to a person. Um, So a lot of the builders of AI systems, and this isn't just true of AI, it's true of a lot of technology, have thought about the efficiency piece of the technology first, and they build the technology to optimize throughput, essentially, to optimize the, the speed and accuracy of the decision. And they haven't thought about 
who might come in as a bad guy to try to take that away. And thinking about building security and privacy into the algorithm so that it's a secure, confidential session is something that especially in public sector matters. So a couple of thoughts about pub, sort of public sector principles. The other piece that's essential is for agency leaders to have transparency into customer feedback data. Mallory Bullman explains. The other piece I would say is essential is for agency leaders to have transparency into that customer feedback data. Uh, one of the things that has come out of the president's management agenda and some A11 guidance is for the highest impact service providers, those service providers that interact directly with customers, they are required now to report quarterly on customer feedback. And with that, you have some transparency that's introduced so that if agencies are building systems that ultimately don't meet the needs of the customer, that they're, you know, agencies are building in and OMB is building in a feedback loop to make sure you know, agency leaders do know if there's a high call abandonment rate on, you know, at the call centers, if there is you know, websites where people are you know, unable to complete their transactions. And increasingly, agencies are being required to generate standardized information so they can compare themselves to each other as well. So if you call the Social Security Administration and interact with their system, you can compare that to the IRS call center. So I think with increased transparency and data available, I, I, my hope is that services to the customer improve. AI is really good at understanding when things are mostly similar and recognizing when there's an outlier. Dan Chenick once again tells us why. Something else, Bill, that you said struck me and reminded me of something that we talked about yesterday in our, in our smaller session on, on AI, and that is the outlier I issue. AI is really good at understanding when things are mostly similar um, and recognizing when there's an outlier. And you can, tr there's, you can train training data based on sort of basic information, even using, we've talked yesterday about using regression analysis to do this, to understand where are the outliers in a particular transactional set and can you train the AI to know that, all right, if I've got a person that's got 16 different unusual circumstances that aren't like most other customers that are going to come into contact with, I'm not going to try to have an automated session anymore. I'm just going to kick that person right over to an agent who can really deal with the personalization that's needed for that session. And that's something that I think as we see AI evolving, we'll see more of. Bill Wyatrowski of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics offers an example of how AI is good at identifying outliers. So I actually have an example where um, we, um, we have this, the, the machine learning that reads a description of an, a workplace injury. And we use something called a bag of words model. This is a, a logistic regression. Um, that's about as much as I know about it. It sort of looks for keywords and, and patterns of words. And the particular case said that something like there was no indication of concussion. And the bag of words picked up concussion and coded it as having a concussion. And so we're actually um, going to sort of the next generation, uh, so this neural network, again, um, you've, you've sort of reached the limit of my knowledge here, um, where uh, apparently um, that, that type of pattern would not happen. And it would, um, it would sort of recognize not just the concussion, but the no evidence of. And, and so that's sort of an example of, you know, you have to be careful about, um, about the model you put together and, and sort of the, what, what results you're going to get out of it. Government agencies need people who can build, use, and research artificial intelligence. This raises issues of necessary skill set and proper job classification. Here's Dan Chenuck. So it's interesting you started the day off on a panel around uh, analytics and this question around data science 
uh, came up. And of course, now we have this new law, the Evidence Act, um, which has chief data officers, uh, right, and chief evaluation officers, and there will be lots of, of progression toward those uh, professions uh, in the public sector. Uh, one of the recommendations that the report makes is that for AI, we need to think about, a, for lack of a better term, a job classification, um, where people who are expert in this area, this is more of the data builders who are really building AI systems, that if that's the main part of their job, maybe we should think about whether it's a full job classification in the OPM sense or some sort of a marker like, like exists for cybersecurity professionals, um, that the people in that profession sort of are, are recognized that way. And then we can build backwards to think about how do we train public administration professionals, how do we train students who are entering government to d develop the skills that are associated with that job classification. And we're just at the beginning of, of, this, of this process. I think we're, we've seen more work in the analytics space sort of pre-AI in terms of understanding how do we think about data as a strategic asset and building up analytic skill sets, the ability to look at large um, uh, amounts of information, not just in a single database, but in different formats and thinking about building program interfaces, APIs to, to deal with that so we can get pretty pretty technical pretty quickly in this area but your question is a really solid one in terms of thinking about how to establish the enough capacity in the government to be able to manage this transition over the next five to ten years. Bill Wyatrowski of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics touches on the challenges facing BLS in this area. And you touched upon an issue that we are very much struggling with right now. So we um, we have largely uh, sort of three three occupational classifications at BLS: economists, statisticians, and IT professionals. And in fact, this work sort of crosses all of them. And uh, so finding a way, uh, one, to get them all, all together. So, uh, it, you know, in sort of a traditional model, the, um, the economist or the subject matter expert would sort of say, you know, I, I want to develop, I need a system to do this. They would throw it over the transom to the IT people and then sort of run away and hope that the system came out and, you know, and was, was exactly what they wanted. We're trying to move away from that process over time. And, uh, but the, some of these artificial intelligence techniques are really taking take Taking place among um, individual um, economists and statisticians and IT professionals who are interested, who may have touched upon this in school. Um, I have one one of the, the um, folks on my staff that um, works on this a lot is just sort of codes all night long and is in these chat rooms where they you know they're they're doing sort of this artificial intelligence work just sort of for fun. And so it's sort of bringing all of those disciplines together. We have. Um, hired, I, I think, our first data scientist, and there is a new classification, I believe, uh, which is sort of a piece of the statistician class classification where you can sort of have an add-on uh, for data science, but there are just a wide variety of new skills, and your um, sort of reskilling is a real key. I mean, there's, um, there's a real concern about sort of the mid-career person sort of being left behind in this, and that's one reason why we've really tried to have a big tent, to try to get as many people knowledgeable about this and interested in this as we possibly can. How will the use of artificial intelligence change the skills of federal employees? We'll find out when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security, 
in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Artificial intelligence, AI, in government involves the building, designing, and use and evaluation of cognitive computing and machine learning to improve the management of public agencies. How is the public sector using AI? And what are some of the key challenges and opportunities? Today we'll explore these questions and so much more with Kevin D'Souza, author of the IBM Center Report, Delivering Artificial Intelligence in Government, Challenges and Opportunities. Uh, Kevin, before we delve into it, would you describe for us core aspects of artificial intelligence, AI, and what are some of the key milestones in AI's evolution? So, so I think the, the key components of uh, AI, um, I would uh, break it down into four elements. So one is the large amount of data that, that goes into any AI, uh, any AI technology that helps the algorithms learn and train based on the data. So one is the large amount of, of data. The next is the learning algorithms that have the ability to uncover patterns and associations among the collection of variables. Uh, number three is the ability of the, of the technology to interact with humans in a pretty natural and normal manner. And so, so you don't have a human thinking that they are actually dealing with an artificial tool. And then four is the ability of the tool to adapt based on changing conditions in the environment. So as new data arrives that it needs to process, it has the ability to learn from its experiences and adapt its uh, learning mechanisms. Now, in terms of the key milestones, I think if you look at the history, especially over the last probably 20, 30 years, uh, you have the instance of IBM's Big Blue in, I think it was 97, then you have 2011 when uh, Hudson, uh took on uh, Jeopardy. And then uh, most recently, I think a, a, a critical event happened where a tool designed by researchers out of, out of Carnegie Mellon 
were able uh, to actually uh, compete and outperform the world's premier poker players. And so you have seen the evolution of AI from the ability of computers to uh, process large amounts of uh, data to uh, computers where they are able to predict strategies to now where you have uh, technologies uh, who are able to actually bluff. Uh, and so that's a pretty human trait, the ability to bluff. Uh, and so I, I would say that those are a few of the key uh, events in AI history, especially over the last probably 30 years. Uh, Kevin, AI-inspired systems are being deployed in almost every field, including healthcare, education, public safety, finance, international development, and the arts. Would you detail for us the functionalities of cognitive computing systems? Yeah, I mean, so as uh, noted early on, uh, I think they have large amounts of uh, data, they have learning algorithms, and they have the ability to adapt. However, in the particular deployments where we have seen them go live, they have a couple of added elements. So one is they have deep domain knowledge in the area that they are being deployed. So if you have a public safety cognitive computing tool, they will have large amounts of domain knowledge inbuilt about public safety. Uh, the other thing is they are mainly deployed to augment, not replace the human experts. So the way I would differentiate this is you can have a lot of technologies that actually automate aspects of everything that we do. However, cognitive computing uh, tools are a higher level of information technologies where they actually augment human experts where the capabilities of human experts need augmentation because they are limited. Humans cannot process large amounts of data and they cannot deal with information at a rapid rate like a machine can. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the use of AI to transform government. Mallory Bullman from the Partnership for Public Service talks about how AI in government will require employee reskilling. There also will have to be some reskilling of folks who are currently in the federal workforce, who are experienced and well-versed in their programs, in the policies they're responsible for, but make sure that they have a chance to understand the lexicon of you know, artificial intelligence, really have some skills to be true users of the, of the data. They don't necessarily need to know how to do the programming, but they need to know how to ask the questions. And so I think that's something we're going to increasingly see in the next 10 years. From reskilling employees in the AI age to how AI transforms leadership and how to be a leader in the AI era, once again, here's Dan Chenock from the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Some of our research has shown that leaders who are really moving into the vanguard of technology like this, um, they communicate well sort of why the technology matters to the mission of their agency or their, their program. 
they communicate the need for change, as, as Bill talked about, the fact that if we, if we do this, you're not going to have to spend six hours a day recoding information. You'll be able to move into more higher value work. So the employees see the benefit of that. But they also understand the risks. And they, they enable employees to, uh, to fail safely. Uh, and we talk about that. We hear a lot today about fail fast. Uh, and that really starts at the top, uh, and that, that a leader can sort of encourage the ability to experiment, the ability to learn, and it's not necessarily a failure. I mean, how many times did, what's the proverbial story about Edison failed, you know, 100 and some odd times before he invented the light bulb? Um, sort of encouraging that learning process, especially in a rapidly evolving technology environment like this, is a characteristic of a, of a program leader, is not necessarily a technology expert, but is, is enabling technology teams, whether they're government or industry or researchers who are contributing ideas, to be able to come forward. For Mallory Bowman from the Partnership for Public Service, change seems the only constant. I also think as, as we think about leadership skills and requirements, a lot of things, you know, Dan, you were talking about communication, and I think a lot about change management principles. You know, this isn't the first change that the federal workforce will go through. It's, it's not the last. But I do think at the end of the day, the focus on the mission and what the end goal of the agency is is going to be really important. You know, we, we've said before that AI isn't the peanut butter you spread on everything. You want to think about what at the end of the day is the agency trying to do? Where can AI augment the work to make things easier, more efficient, more effective, and where is it not appropriate? And I think some of those difficult decisions are going to ultimately rest with the agency leader. Uh, similarly, you, the agency leader needs to think about the incentive structures that are in place and really think about what is the agency trying to, to accomplish? What are the metrics of success? How will it know that if it's using AI that things are getting better? And where do you pull the plug if, if things are not working? Making AI work properly may require agencies to change their business processes. Here's Dan Chenock. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of the compared to what, uh, it's not AI, yes, AI, no. It's AI compared to what we have currently. Right. And is it, even though there are risks and, and costs and challenges, is it still better than than the current scenario and how do you communicate that i think your your point that uh, about sort of understanding the language between the builders and the users and having people that understand sort of that business process interface and the language of that that's a timeless technology right. challenge right we've had we've always said we really need to think about it before you apply a new cool technology you want to re-engineer the process so that it's much simpler and can be uh, uh, in, enabled more effectively by the new technology. And, and communicating that, I don't think that's a new art, but it's something where we need to apply a new language to think about how to, how to bring BPR into the 21st century around AI or blockchain or quantum computing, any of these new technologies that are rapidly changing the face of how government delivers services and how industry operates and how to take those technologies and, and explain them in a way that people who are used to the old, old system can understand the value of that movement and sort of the stepwise progression in adapting the new technology. How are agencies engaging citizens in the selection and use of artificial intelligence? Here's Mallory Bullman from the Partnership of Public Service. I think it's a really essential area for research. One of the most innovative practices I've seen some agencies undertake is something called journey mapping, where agencies go through and in a detailed way try to understand exactly who their customers are. This is something that happens all the time in the pub private sector and the public sector is really starting to, to get a handle on that. Um, the VA, for example, has created very detailed journey maps around 
who are different types of veterans from, from different wars, what are the touch points they have with the VA, what does that look like, and what that gives the agency is a sense of what do their customers want. It gives their customers a chance to provide input, and then you can tailor the systems around people's expectations. And the best journey maps that are developed are developed in partnership with the agency's customers. You know, a good journey map doesn't happen in a conference room of people that work in an agency. And I think particularly for the university community who are embedded in every community around our country, that's a chance to really become the eyes and the ears for the federal government of what do people want and expect from their government and how can those data be really clear so people can use them. With the rise of AI in government, what will the government of the future look like? Dan Shannock from the IBM Center for the Business of Government offers his insights. A book we wrote uh, called Government for the Future, where, which had a number of sort of leading experts and scholars take a look at the future of government in different dimensions. And one of those dimensions was around this concept of citizen-driven government. And what you're describing is to take uh, this the journey mapping elements of what has been used in the software um, field of agile de software development, which involves a lot of iteration with users and development over time, rather than sort of closing the door and developing right, the application right. and coming out a year later. Um, and, and applying that over time, and, and we do, I think, need more research about the best ways, the best mechanisms to involve users, not just when you're developing software, but when you're developing programs, when you're developing management interfaces. And it gets back to the question we talked about earlier, how do you get different skill sets talking to one another? What's, what's the translation between the, the builders and, and the uh, users? Because those are both different types of citizens that are going to be involved in interacting with government around AI. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, using artificial intelligence to transform government, with Dan Chanuck from the IBM Center for the Business of Government, Mallory Bowman from the Partnership for Public Service, and Bill Wyachowski from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation exploring the intersection of government, innovation, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network.